This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Good morning. So we uh, we have some ground to cover. So <laughs> so so let me pray. Uh, the timer on the screen is already counting for me. So uh, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you choose both in creation um, and ultimately through your son to reveal yourself to us, Lord. Thank you that we can gather together as people who have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. Thank you that we can sing and worship you and call you father uh, and you love and you care for us, Lord. Lord, I pray as we look at this passage this morning, as we um, kind of wrestle with what it means um, even to, to bring good or, or what it means to honor you and, and do what is right, um, that that wouldn't be divorced from your love for us, that wouldn't be divorced from your desire for us to see your glory and your goodness and your majesty, and that even as we uh, put off and put on some of the things in this passage, Lord, that that that's so we could experience and taste and dwell on more of you. So help us realize that, help us wrestle with that this morning so at the end of the day we could be refreshed um, by your son and by your presence. In your name I pray, amen. So our uh, series title has been Heavenly Minded for Earthly Good and we've spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, over the last four or five weeks thinking about uh, heavenly realities. Uh, we, kind of in my prayer, I talked about how we, we've been objectively transferred from one kingdom to the kingdom of the beloved son. Uh, we have this great, wonderful mystery that the, the fullness of God dwells in Christ bodily and he dwells in you. And, and, and when Paul starts this section, he's almost just sort of, you know, I think I've referenced this verse a handful of times because it's the, it's the natural next thought to all of these wonderful, beautiful realities that he's already been talking about. So, so at the very beginning of chapter 3, he says, okay, we've said all these wonderful things. Then if, if you've been raised with Christ, if you're, if you're seated at the right hand of the Father, if you've been uh, baptized with him in death and are raised with him in a resurrection like his, if, if you've been transferred to this new kingdom, Seek the things that are above. Seek those things where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If this is what's happened to you, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Because like I've already said, like he's been saying for the last few weeks, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Seek and go after these things. I've just told you a bunch of wonderful, beautiful things about the, the things that God has accomplished. So he's, in, so he's saying, if this is true, if you believe this, he's saying, seek and set your mind on these things. This is where you should focus. This is the thing that should be wrapped up in your mind. This is the thing that should be spinning around in my head when I have a silent moment is who God is and what he's done. And then he kind of goes off into this long list of kind of things not to do and things to do. And then another set of things to do. And I, my temptation is, 
and you know, maybe you don't share this, but my temptation is when I get a list of to-dos, I, I then just mentally have separated that from what God is telling me to pursue and to seek in his glory and his goodness and his beauty and his majesty. So I think, okay, well, over here, I have to do the things. They're hard. They're annoying. They're not what I want to do. But then I better go over here so I can seek the wonderful, beautiful things about God. And there's like this separation between these two things. And it's, I think it's easy to separate those things out because it's hard to sort of make sense on how those two things, the beauty and wonders of God and the to-dos kind of get wrapped together. And I, I thought uh, a, a passage that would maybe help us digest putting those two things together uh, was in Psalm 34, because I like the analogy that's used here. So I'm going to go to Psalm 34, and I, I have that verse on the screen, verse 8, so you don't have to turn there. But I like the analogy that the psalmist uses here, and I think this analogy will help us as we go through the to-dos, weave those to-dos together with the beauty and wonder of God. I want, I want to try to bring those things together so they're not totally separated. Psalm 34 Verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste. It's, it's an experience. Like, like understand and have a sense of the goodness of the Lord. Amen. Taste it. Doesn't say like know the Lord, which you could say that. It's a good thing. It doesn't say... Um, Memorize facts about the Lord, which you could do that. That's a good thing. He's very particular in saying, taste. Have a real sense of who God is experientially. Taste him, that he's good. He goes on. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And I want to kind of connect those two pieces together because he just said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think what the psalmist is doing in this section is if we, if we have a, a sense, if we have a real experience, if we're actually feasting on the goodness and the glory of God himself, we won't lack anything. We could be starving to death. We could be sick. We could be struggling with our work. We could be disappointed by someone. We could be abandoned. But if our experience, if our tasting is on God and his goodness, we actually don't lack anything actually don't lack anything. And so I think what Paul is trying to say, he is giving us this list because he wants us to feast. He wants us to, to eat up the glory and goodness of God. They're not separate things for him. They're, they're not like these good news, awesome things about God and then the to-dos over here. He says, set your mind on things that are above and I'm going to share with you how to do that. These to-dos are so that you can feast on 
the glory and goodness of God. These are things that you do so that you can lack nothing, so that you can feast on God himself. And in verse four, and back to Colossians, that's why he says, when Christ, who is your life, when Jesus, the one where the fullness of God dwells in him bodily, who dwells in you, he's your life. When he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. You will appear with him in glory. And it's not like a word um, we use a lot, uh, glory. And I, don't, I was joking with Josh earlier when I said that we're going to feast on glory and I said, by watching him play volleyball, <laughs> which, which he said, no, that's not the case. There, there are, uh, or the avalanche, you know, like there was that last second goal. Yeah, it was like ridiculous goal with seconds left in the game, you know. And everyone, it, that draws a crowd in the playoffs because in that moment, people are feasting on glory. <laughs> like that's a, that's a glorious, weighty, intense moment that has good and, and uh, excitement and something that draws a crowd. So I like to think of glory as the, as the good and the beautiful, true things about God that draw us in. I think gravity is like a really good analogy. You know, ever seen the, the picture in high school where they show you space as like a flat thing and they drop a ball and it like, it like drops the, the paper or whatever it is and it's, things are just drawn towards it. So this idea of God's glory is majesty and beauty and truth that you're just drawn into. And the psalmist is using this analogy of eating it up, taste it, experience it, feast on glory. And I think we, you know, we haven't, we're talking about all those good things and, and I think in our heads we're like, okay, well, how does that have to do with the things that I do? Like, how do I feast on God's glory when I'm not supposed to do this and I'm supposed to do this? And if you've, um, I like the food analogy because I spent a bunch of time with the, some of the toddlers this week. Uh, and if you spend a bunch of time with toddlers, you know that feasting on something is a whole thing, which I think it's hilarious to me because when kids, like the first thing they do is like, can I hold this? And then like the next instinct for like a little baby is what? Put it in my, can I put it in my mouth? Like, like they just want to touch it and eat it or whatever. And it could be a rock, you know, like I think one of them, I won't name names for the parents here, but the kid just putting like dirt in their mouth. <laughs> just, and you're like, what are you feasting on? <laughs> like why, why, why? And then, then you sit them down for snack or for lunch and you give them something that's like, they really like. And like, this is your favorite thing. And they're like, no, I don't want that. And you're like, just taste it. <laughs> if you taste it, you'll just keep eating. Like, it's like, but it's for whatever, it's just a whole ordeal. Like getting a toddler to eat when they'll put dirt in their mouth, but getting them to eat something they like can be just this whole project. And I think parents are, I see all the parents like shaking their, everyone that's like, has a toddler. In, a, in the same sense, God is feeding us with his glory and we put dirt in our mouth. He's sharing us beautiful and wonderful things, and we're saying, uh-uh. I don't want that. And we're irrational, <laughs> but he loves us, and he cares for us, and he's patient with us. 
So what Paul is doing is he's going through this list. He's saying, if you're going to feast on glory, if you're going to feast on glory, the first thing you have to do is spit out the dirt. (laughs) The first thing you have to do is spit out the dirt. Look at what he says in verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Which is idolatry. There's a whole string of negative terms there. But there's a theme here. This, this, this passion, uh, 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 he doesn't mean don't get excited about anything. It's sort, of, it's sort of bookend with covetousness, which is also translated as greed, like uh, inordinate desire or desire for something that's not appropriate to have desire for. In, in scripture, uh, sexual, the word for sexual immorality there is very much associated with uh, sexual sin, yes, but the reason why sexual sin is sin is because God has given us a wonderful and beautiful way to experience sex And if you've lived for any amount of time, you know that there's a bunch of other ways we would rather do it. We want to do it outside of marriage. We want to do it at our preferences. We want to do it on a screen. And he's saying, I've given you something that's beautiful and good that you should desire. And we twist it. We twist it. And that's related to this idea of covetousness or greed. It's the same thing. It's extra desire. I've given you a lot of wonderful and beautiful things and it's never enough. You're not satisfied. You desire more than I give you. It's it's in one of the Ten Commandments. It's saying, don't desire, it's it's, it's related even to idolatry. Don't desire your neighbor's wife, but it also says their donkey or their house or their countertops or whatever. (laughs) There's translation to now, you know? Um, But... (laughs) There's nothing wrong with a donkey or house or nice countertops. But God's saying, if I haven't given you those things, the problem is, is get the dirt out of your mouth if you want to see glory. Put to death wrong desires. Put Whether those are the inappropriate desire or too much of something that you haven't been given. Put to death these desires which then makes sense of because that is idolatry, which again goes back to the first commandment in the 10 commandments. That is idolatry. You worship that thing if you have to have it. You worship that thing if you're willing to throw aside my word to do it your way. Because now it's God and it's deciding what's right. It's deciding what's true. And he's saying, if you're gonna feast on my glory if you're going to enjoy me for the the majestic and wonderful good God I am, then you need to spit the dirt out and you need to recognize when you have wrong desires or inappropriate desires because that's what you're worshiping. And if that's what you worship, you're never going to see my glory. So he's saying spit out the dirt. I think it's easy... um, you know, it's easy to, for like the, the really bad sins, you know, like, oh, sexual morality. I'm married. I don't got to worry about that one, you know, um, or, uh, 
you know, I don't, I'm, I'm very, I'm fairly content, so I don't have to really, you know, think about, it. I don't desire to take anything from my, my friends or anything like that. Uh, but, but how do I know if, like, my hobby is, is I'm desiring it too much? Or, or how do I know if um, something I, I, that is good and beautiful that I want and that I'm pursuing, how do I know if that's a, a greedy desire? How do I know if that's an idolatrous desire? And, and there's, you know, we can, we can put that through a handful of filters. And I think that's part of the Christian life is that God has given us a bunch of wonderful and beautiful things to know him more and, and to see him as more glorious, whether it's a hobby or a job and, or a family. There's a lot of things that he's given us so that we can be drawn to him and see his glory. But how do I know if that's too much? How do I know if I've made that an idol Right, beginning to worship that thing, and I think one way, I think one way to recognize that is what Paul is saying in the next few verses. In verse seven, he says, "You you used to walk in these things when you were living in them. This is before God has done all this stuff, but now you have to put them all away." And he's got another like list of five things. And he's saying, and I think this is a really good way to say, okay, how is this is this desire inordinate? Is it extra? Is it too much? Do I worship this? And whatever it is I enjoy, whatever it is I really like and value and, and, and spin about in my head, if that thing gets affected some way, what comes out of me? Amen. If I don't get to participate in the hobby, what comes out of me? If I'm, di- if I'm uh, disappointed with a relationship that I'm in and it doesn't go the way I want, what comes out of me? Is it, and this is his list, he says, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your lie, from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Amen. Those are the practices of the old self. Am I frustrated? Do I have malice towards someone that maybe received something I wanted? Do I think negatively of them? Am I willing to slander? Am I willing to say things to throw someone under the bus because of how I feel? Obscene talk? Something doesn't go the way I want it to? Maybe I hold it in, you know, we're all, we're all good Christians here, but things are going on in here. Maybe I don't, but what, what's going, what's, what's going on in my head? What kind of words am I saying based on this thing that was taken away from me? Or this thing that doesn't go the way I want it to go. Paul's saying, you know how we know if we have wrong or inordinate desires, you know how we know that if we go to this thing for our peace and our joy, we're eating the dirt if when God messes with it, something bad comes out of us. That's a good indication that we value that thing too much. But he reminds us, the reality of what's happened. He says, you have put on the new self. 
and it's being renewed. This is again, the heavenly mindedness. This is what he's trying to remind us to do is to feast on that glory. He's saying, forget that stuff. That's not who you are. And if that's where you're dwelling, you're not, gonna, you're not even gonna begin to understand the wonderful and amazing things that God has done. You're not gonna be able to feast on heavenly glory if you keep eating dirt. He says, you've been renewed. You're being transformed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You're, God is actually taking these things away from you so that you can image him more so that you can display more of his glory, so that you can know what he looks like, so you can, be, so you can feast on that goodness and that glory, so that you can experience it, so that you can taste it. And he, he, I love how in verse 11, he sort of just like levels the playing field across the board. Because I think when we're confronted with these things that we want or desires that we don't have, it's easy to say, well, yeah, but that person, or if I was only in this situation but I'm dealing with this and this other person isn't dealing with this. In verse 11, he just levels the playing field. He goes, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are in this new kingdom, for those of us who are being renewed after the image of your creator, there's not Greek or Jew. For Paul, those are like the two categories. There's not Greek or Jew. There's, there's, there's just one. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised. There's not people practicing religion a certain way and people who are not practicing religion a certain way. There's not barbarian, Scythian. There's not ethnic differences here. There's not slave or free. There's not socially, social economic differences. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your religiosity. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your finances. In this situation, being feasting on the glory of God, when he says, spit out the dirt, there is only one. There is only Christ. He is all and in all. God is operating with his people in every ethnic realm, in every religious background, in every socioeconomic scale, on every front, every single one of those has Christ in them, the hope of glory. So as he's saying, spit out the dirt, it doesn't matter your life situation in the sense of keeping you from experience and feasting on the glory of God. That's what he wants for you. So, we need his help. <laughs> in the same way I have to tell a toddler to not put that thing in their mouth because they might choke on it or I don't know where that's been or that's just dirt. He's graciously telling us what to get out of our mouths so that we could feast on him. And if only that was enough. You know, if you, if you take the dirt out of the child's mouth, they won't then sit down at the table and eat their meal for them that's good for them. <laughs> Even the ones they like. They don't, and we don't either. We need God's help to recognize what it looks to feast on him. We need God's help to sort of recognize the spread, <laughs> to, to see what is the delicious morsels of his character that we should take in, digest, and, and make it so that we actually are not lacking anything. We need his help to see those things. More so than a toddler. 
because we have sin in us, twisting everything. And his word comes to us and says, you wanna feast on my glory? Let me show you what is glorious. Let me show you what is beautiful. You need my help to recognize the spread. So he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen one, chosen ones, which is how he sort of introduces the letter too, holy and beloved. We're, we're set apart and we're loved by God. This is, a, this is an objective thing that he's done for all of those who are in Christ. You are beloved. There's no if, if you're in Christ is the only if. There's been a transfer. You're set apart, you're beloved in him. What's delicious? What should we feast on? Compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts is the first thing. Get not a phrase we use a whole lot. The idea of a compassionate heart is the desire to relieve suffering from in here. The, de- the desire to relieve suffering. And I see that even in people at Emmaus. We talked about this morning in prayer where we're giving thank- as we were giving thanks to God for where he's working. You know, a couple of us mentioned that we will uh, be in transition and we're we're talking to a handful of people about making space for us because we don't know when we're moving into wherever we're moving into. And we have compassionate people in the community that are reaching out and saying, hey, maybe we can accommodate you this way. That's kind of been a reoccurring theme in Emmaus is trying to help out with those kinds of things. Denver is difficult for that. But we've seen people who are doing what they can to relieve suffering. And it tears them up when, when they can't or when there's not a, not a way to feel that because we see from our hearts, we see people suffering and we want to relieve that suffering. And when you can taste that, when you can experience that, you can say, this is the creator I worship who has all power, all authority, all love for me. And all he wants to do is relieve my suffering. He's working in even the difficult things in my life so that I can feast more on him. He's trying to show us what is the to recognize the spread that's in front of us. Kindness, humility. Humility is one of those things that just sounds good, but is like no one likes that. He's saying, you know what? You know how to feast on my glory? Be humiliated. I ain't eating that mac and cheese or whatever is in front of me. Be humiliated. Like we like humility, we don't like humiliation. Those don't, we, you can't separate those things. But he's with the weak and the lowly. He gives grace to the humble and puts up with the proud. Now he opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. He's against them but he gives to those who are humiliated. And when we feel the sting of humiliation, 
because it is a sting, it lets us taste a tiny bit of what God went through for us. That the creator of everything, that spoke everything into existence, that gives us the gifts that we then like too much more than him, would come down from that and take on flesh and be put on a cross. Would deal with being misunderstood. Would have Pilate say, don't you know I have authority over your life to take it? How the next sentence from Jesus was, don't you know I'm God? No, he humbled himself. He, he dealt humiliation. And when we taste it in our own life, we can taste the glory and majesty of the God who would humiliate himself for us. And we can be drawn into that. Meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Like we're fine with forgiving as long as it's like certain things happen, you know? Like, well, they need to know or I didn't like how they said that. God's saying, forgive like I forgave you. Because we approached him perfectly. We went to him very aware of everything we did to fail him. Not at all. And yet he says, I forgive you. I don't count your wrongs against you. I don't even look at you or consider you like you failed because you're forgiven. And if you do that for others and you feel the loss because you have just forgiven them even though they haven't appreciated you and you know how that is not comfortable and you feel like there's an injustice there, then you have a sense, a little taste of the fact that God has done that for you. You can begin to feast on his glory when you see what you're doing is actually pointing you upward to the creator that you're reflecting. And just, you know, to sum it all up, he says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So just to kind of wrap it all up, think of others as more important than yourself. Be patient, be kind. This is the, the, the overarching character of the God that you worship. And as you love, as you feast on the, the glory of God through the things that you do, that's gonna bind us together. It's gonna bind everyone together. In a very real sense, as Jesus prays, Lord, let them be one as you and I, Father, are one. There's perfect love there. There's perfect unity there. There's perfect considering each other there. And as we do that and we see people brought together in love, it gives us a taste of the triune God that we worship. 
It gives us a little inkling of the glory and the majesty of our relationships when they'll be in eternity as we're all knit together perfectly in love. So if we want to feast on the glory so that we lack nothing, we have to spit out the dirt. We have to recognize the spread that's in front of us and we have to partake in Christ. We have to consume him. Look at what he says. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And we've talked about this a handful of times, this word peace, comes from a, a Greek and a Hebrew word, uh, shalom and arene. And it's more than just this idea that we're like not fighting anymore. Uh, when they're building the temple wall and they completed it, there was shalom. There was peace. Not because bad guys weren't there, but because it was complete. You had what you needed. And he's echoing back to our sufficiency with Christ dwelling in us. Because if we forgive others, if we put ourselves out there for others, if we're humiliated, if we're kind, when people don't deserve it, we're going to miss out. And in a sense, yeah, we will. But he's saying the fullness of God dwells bodily in Christ and has completed you. You couldn't ask for more. There's nothing that you could get from anyone else. Joy, satisfaction, respect. There's nothing you could get from anyone else that isn't already in you in Christ. That has to be dwelling in your heart, the innermost part of your being, the, the complete, full satisfaction of God dwelling in you. Feast on Christ. Do you, do you want to... Do you want to feast on the glory and majesty of God you step forward and, and obey him in the things that he's called you to do? Then man, you have, you have to be consuming the peace of Christ that's in your heart. Partake in Christ. I like this little tiny sentence in our Bibles, and be thankful. I mean, why didn't they just put a comma there? And be thankful. It's like this separate thing. I want to make a point about it. Be thankful. I said, well, how do I recognize? How do I enjoy? How do I feast on Christ in the completeness I have in him? Because when someone throws me under the bus at work, that's what I'm thinking about. When my spouse doesn't apologize the right way or does the same thing again, that's what I'm thinking about. When I fail at something, that's what I'm thinking about. I think Paul is reminding of this way, reminding us when he says, and be thankful. This goes back to a bunch of different things in the letter, and it's actually going to be pointed at again when we get to the next sermon. He's saying, dwell on what God is doing. Amen. Consider where he is at work. Think about the love that the saints have for one another. Praise God for how he has transformed you here. The more you consider him, the more you thank him, the more you worship him, the more you're going to feast on the peace that you have in Christ, the completeness you have in Christ. 
everything and the sufficiency and the joy and the wonder that you have in what Christ has been in you. Be thankful. It's just a way to recognize. It's a way to partake of Christ is being thankful. Verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's a theme of thankfulness again. How do we partake in Christ? We remember that he makes us complete. Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. He's the one that makes you complete. How do we partake in Christ? Pay attention to what he said. His word. The word of Christ. Let that dwell in you richly. I mean, Paul's telling us some things to do here, but he spent a chunk of time, and we've spent a handful of sermons trying to share with you the word of Christ. The gospel which you heard, which is bearing fruit and growing. There's so many wonderful, beautiful things about what God has done that we can dwell on in here, that we can listen to. I think even as we decipher, it's hard to even know sometimes if I am uh, being led astray by something that is a good gift. I think there, uh, um, hobbies or hiking or skiing, there's a lot of like really good things. Or raising a child, what a good gift, right? Like that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. You got to put, yeah, it has its days. (laughs) It's a difficult thing too. (laughs) Um, How do I know when I'm being led astray by those things? How do I, I don't, because here's the thing, because of sin in us, we don't always intuitively know that we're eating dirt. That's the point of the word of Christ. He's giving you all wisdom and understanding in what he said. So go back to that word. Examine your heart as it relates to that word that our king has spoken about what is good, what is true, what is right. And that's the measuring stick by to say, where is my heart going? How can I make sense of this thing that I'm involved in? How can I say, am I doing this for the glory and honor of God? And I think, uh, you know, we've, I brought this verse up in Corinthians. He died so that we wouldn't live for ourselves, but we live for others. I've been really convicted. How many of my hobbies or whatever I enjoy are for others? How do I, does that mean I can do that with other people all the time? Probably not. But, but do I even stop to think? This is a fun thing. How could I involve others? How could I get joy in, in, with this beautiful thing that God has given me with other people? Do I stop to even put it through that lens? It's just a way that the word of Christ can help this become not something that I worship, but something that dr- actually draws me closer to God because he's given me all these beautiful and wonderful things. he kind of wraps it up and says whatever you do whatever it is in word or deed do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him whatever you do 
do in the name of our Lord Jesus. The name. We've said this before. Name is like, we just use it as a label. You know, that's like table, name, you know? But, but name has more weight than that in the Bible. It's like, it's like a descriptor. It's, like a, it's, like, it's an attribute of the person. You know, there's some really depressing names in the Old Testament, you know? We named them this because they were a loser, so loser was their name, you know? And you're like, wow, you don't have a lot of hope for that child growing up, you know? <laughs> but, but God's name is his character. Saying if you want to feast on his glory, everything you do, spit out the dirt, look at the spread in front of you, partake in Christ, whatever you do, do it consistent with the character of God because that will help you understand how glorious and majestic and loving and caring and patient and how he humbled himself. You'll understand him better and just like gravity, you'll be drawn in more to his glory and majesty. Whatever you do, have him as a reference point. So, he then gives us a little section. It's almost an underwhelming section. He's writing a church, and he's like, I want you to feast on the glory of God. And I'm gonna tell you what to put off, I'm gonna tell you what to put on, and now that I have giving you all this instruction so that you can understand how glorious and majestic God is. I'm gonna give you this, the next step, the next instruction to just go out and change the world. And he says, I'm gonna give you some instructions about family life and about work. Because I want you to celebrate the good. I want you to see where God has called you and know that you can feast on his glory in the most mundane of circumstances. And I would say critical, I would say central to everything that happens in the world is very much the family unit and how we participate at work. You get rid of those things and stuff won't last for very long. But it's important. Saying, I'm telling you to seek God's glory and I want you to go after the good and celebrate that because these are critical things. And I'd say for most of us in here, we are involved in work or family life in one way, shape, or another. Says, so, well, then what does it look like? In these simple scenarios, says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Saying this is the structure for demonstrating the glory and majesty of God. This is what it looks like to seek and feast on his glory. A healthy husband and wife. Celebrate that. That's a good thing. That's a cultural changing thing. That sets you apart. I mean, I've been in plenty of office environments where it's like, yada, yada, my wife, yada, yada, my husband. And, you know, it's not, it's tempting sometimes to be like, yeah, you know. <laughs> like, we all are sinners, so no one's married to Jesus. There's a, we could find a problem. 
But people look at me like I'm crazy when I'm like, no, I really like spending time with my wife. She's great. No, we do this together. Yeah, I was kind of a jerk, so I had to like go to her and say, like, I'm sorry. People are like, okay, now this conversation is uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm called to love her like Jesus, so her preferences are more important than mine. People look at you like you're crazy. Well, yeah, you know, you both have to have your thing. You know, and we do, you know. But what's the priority? You stand out. If you think that a healthy relationship between a husband and a wife isn't an amazing thing that glorifies God and shows his character and is a light to the world, he's saying that's, if, if your heart has changed and you're seeking the glory of God, that's gonna stand out in a world and draw people to him. Amen. That's gonna be different. I feel like I don't even have to convince anyone of the next one. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Preach, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, go and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Amen. So when husbands take up the role of discipling and teaching their children to obey, well, there's a comedian that was like, um, parents aren't doing a really good job of like convincing us that kids are great, you know? He's like, they're like, you should get a kid. He's like, uh, he makes it, he's like, he's like, I want a jet ski. Everyone over there is saying you look like a great time. Like, you should get a jet ski. This is fun. Like, no one acts that way with children. <laughs> he's like, you're not convincing me. But when a, when a parent engages and disciples and enjoys and, and their kids obey and fruit is born from that, that's weird. That stands out. But it's easy as a parent to think that that's just getting in the way of the other things. Oh man, it's easy to think that. It's easy as someone without a kid to think they just get in the way of whatever is going on. But when we see children obey, when we see children grow up in the community, when we care for them and we disciple them and, and we fulfill the great commission by teaching them to obey all that God has commanded, including the commandment to honor thy mother and father. When we see that happen, that's Jesus at work to change the world around us. That's where we can see the power and the glory and the majesty of our creator. That's where we can be holy, set apart, different from the world around us. Amen. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I'll just leave that one. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, wherever you work, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your, your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's a, uh, man, it is easy at work to do things to please the people above you. Like, that's why I like working in big corporations because I'm like, all I need to know is what, not my boss, but what is my boss's boss like? And if I can make that guy happy, I'm, I'm moving to the next rank, whatever. Like, that's just like big company strategy right there. Like, I don't even really care what my boss likes. I care what his boss likes, and that's what I'm gonna focus on. 
It's it just uh, like grilled into us if we're climbing the ladder to please men. It's grilled into us if we're in a, uh, <laughs> to, to succeed, to please those around us. Maybe it's our customers. Maybe it's something else. And that's a, that's a toss to and fro kind of situation. Because some days it's wonderful and some days it's the worst. It just spirals us all around. And God's saying, I don't care what you're, I mean, I don't care. It doesn't matter. All, Christ is all in all, no matter what life situation you're in. You could be at McDonald's part-time, or you could be a corporate executive. At the end of the day, your work is meant to be thinking and considering God himself. You serve the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's sitting on his throne. What I do at my job should be considering, does it please him? If I'm focusing on him and his glory and I'm feasting on his character and who he is and I'm just dwelling on the majesty and glory of my God when I'm at work, that should just be more of the same. Amen. That's where my heart should be. That's what's gonna draw me closer to God at work. And I think because we live in God's world, when we consider submitting to God and his rules, actually good things happen. I've known plenty of believers, even in this room, who have shown up with no experience and because they just want to honor the Lord and what they do, they're moving up. I'm not saying that that's guaranteed. I'm not saying that's how we're living in a broken world. But God isn't just telling us to consider him and what he's doing capriciously. He's made the world to work a certain way. And as we consider him in our work, good things do come from that. And we celebrate the good. He reminds us, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The Lord knows when you are not treated fairly at work. Someone will pay for that. Either Christ on the cross, because their refuge is in him, or that terrible boss will one day stand before a holy God and give an account. That's scary. You don't have to worry about it. So he says, masters, then treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you have a team that works underneath you, if people work for you, you have to be fair. You have to be just because you have a fair and just God. You're reflecting his image to those around you. That was hard for me um, when I worked at Walmart because you just are like happy for good employees that like do a lot of work. So you're like, no one touch this person. I don't care if he was late from work. He's mine. He does a good job. <laughs> and then over here, you're like, you were late for work. I'm gonna have to write you up. Like the temptation is to treat the better employees with partiality. God's saying, I don't work that way. You shouldn't work that way. And man, that forced me into a lot of really difficult conversations because it's easier to just look the other way and sort of manage it to make it work how you think it should work. But that's not honoring the Lord. That's not thinking of his glory, his majesty. That's not seeing the feast that's in front of me so I can see his glory. That becomes idolatry then. That's me trying to work things out my way so that I can get whatever it is I want. 
know, maybe it's just a pat on the back that day. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's something else. He's telling us to celebrate the good. If we're going to feast on the glory of God, if we're going to enjoy the beauty and majesty that is our eternal creator, we have to spit out the dirt. We have wrong desires. We have wrong attitudes. We have to, we have to recognize the, the spread in front of us. We have to see what is his character and how can I emulate that so that we can see his glory. We have to partake in Christ, the, the completeness, the peace that he gives us. His words that direct us and, and shape us and tell us what is good and what is beautiful and what is true, the word of Christ. And we have to celebrate the good. Celebrate the good. Family life is a place where God's glory is put on display. Work life is a place where God's glory is put on display. We should celebrate that. And I think if we are considering those things, if we're having the peace of Christ and the word of Christ dwell in us, it then won't be hard as we do the things to enjoy the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the gospel and the God that we worship. Amen. What we do and what we don't do is not separate from that. They go together. And when we can say with the psalmist, I'm feasting on the glory and the goodness of God, so no matter what situation I'm in, because I have God dwelling in me and I have access to that, I lack nothing. I lack nothing. That's the beauty and majesty of our God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, um, man, that you are patient with us as we um, kind of act like toddlers. You have uh, put a wonderful and beautiful spread of opportunities to feast on your glory in front of us. And sometimes we just have dirt in our mouths and we need your help with that, Lord. Help us remember, though, that you don't love us because of how good we are. You love us because Christ has made us complete. Lord, we often want to see you work in, in, in big and awesome ways, and we pray for that, and we love to see you at work, but you have called us to work. You, we can see your glory. We can see your majesty. We can see you at work in our, in our homes and in our jobs in ways that can satisfy us with your glory. Help us remember that, Lord. I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the time to just sort of reorient our hearts and our minds around you. On your name I pray, amen.